Former Attorney General Jason Roundsburg makes his case to the state Supreme Court. From SDPB, today is Wednesday, February 14th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, SDPB's Lee Strubinger has an update on this morning's testimony. We'll also check in today with two young lawmakers about their early wins and lessons and how to find a voice in peer. Michael Card is with us for today's political analysis, including a look at procedural maneuvers used for leverage in the State House. Plus, how is the debate over abortion during this legislative session impacting the efforts to put the issue in front of voters this fall? Rick Weiland joins us later in the hour. We're broadcasting today live from SCPB's Sioux Falls studios. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. You're tuned in to In the Moment State House on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Former South Dakota Attorney General Jason Roundsburg faced the South Dakota Supreme Court this morning over the future of his law license. Roundsburg struck and killed a pedestrian, Joe Beaver, with his car in September of 2020. He eventually pleaded no contest to misdemeanor traffic charges, but he faced criticism over how he dealt with the investigation. Governor Kristi Noem called for him to resign, and he was eventually impeached by the state legislature. Well, last year, the State Bar Association's Disciplinary Board recommended Roundsburg's law license be suspended for 26 months. Roundsburg appealed, and the state Supreme Court appointed former Circuit Court Judge Bradley Zell as a referee. Judge Zell disagreed with the bar's decision. That left the decision in the hands of the South Dakota State Supreme Court, and they heard the case this morning. So here is a portion of that hearing. You'll hear part of Roundsburg's opening statements here, followed by questions from Justice Janine Kern and Justice Patricia Devaney. It's been 1,251 days, and I count them every day on my calendar, and I say a prayer every day for him and myself and all the members of the family and all the people that it's affected. And I'm very sorry for that. I could address more, but I want to try and give you an opportunity for questions. Questions from the court? Well, the disciplinary board and the legislature both found that you lack candor in your responses uh, to the investigators. Uh, I'd like you to address that and you know, whether or not this court uh, should take those findings into consideration. Well, I, I strongly disagree with their findings. Uh, the, as you know, impeachment's a very political matter. You know, were we just looking at the facts or were other factors in play? When the uh, just, Justice Salter's uh, question in regards to you know, when and where they thought they had a problem with me on the road. I still have questions about some of their findings, but I tried to take responsibility through the court system and the civil process and stuff. I still believe, it still doesn't make sense to me, but I took responsibility. I still know that I went to the, the right after impact, and that is not in their findings. So that, at that moment during the interview, when they said, you're way off the road, that's when it kind of hit me and like, hey, they could be lying to you. They're allowed to do that. And I said, better stop, you know, take, take a moment, 
be sure you explain to them what you think your position is at this moment. And that's when I agreed to take the polygraph test. And I said, if, if there's something you don't believe that I'm saying, I'm willing to try and verify it for you. You know, they questioned me extensively about my cell phone usage, and I was just adamant that I was not on my cell phone at the time. But they just, you know, yes, you are, yes, you are. And I, I, I stood my ground, you know, and I tried to be respectful in telling them that no, I was not. And then later, now the evidence has come, data and everything else that says, no, you, no, he wasn't at the time. So in fact, I was right and they were wrong or they were lying or had, uh, I, I believe that they could obviously form that impression that I was being dishonest because they believed something that turned out to not be true. Do you think you were being less than forthright about your use of the cell phone prior to the accident? Well, I kept, I kept wondering, why are, they, why are we talking about this? Why, why is this relevant? You know, let's get to the accident. That's what I kept thinking while we were going through the interview. Well, regardless of, of what you think it's relevant, do you think it, it's important to be honest about any questions that are asked of you in an interview of that nature? I, yeah, I mean, my, my thought at the time was I knew I was on my cell phone, but not... I didn't know how much. I agree, you know, I, I knew I called my father. I knew it. And sometimes it goes down to how they were asking the question, you know, where are you using your phone? Well, I called my, my father and then it dropped. And then I called him again to, you know, to follow up. You know, and I'm focusing on calls. I wasn't focusing on uh, text messages or websites or anything like that. I was thinking about calls when they were asking for the most part. And then they bring it up and I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. But, why does that matter? We're, we're, we're focusing on the accident here. So that's was some of my thought process. So next we will hear from SDPB's Lee Strubinger, who sat in on that hearing this morning. And Lee joins us now from SDPB's Capitol Studio in Pierre. Uh, welcome back, Lee. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Were there themes that you heard to what the justices were asking Roundsburg and his attorneys today? Yeah, so part of the thing that they wanted to know and that they kept asking the bar about was sort of what part of the rules of professional conduct have been uh, violated uh, with this instance. Uh, and, and the bar attorney, um, uh, Thomas Friedman, said that um, Roundsburg's actions following the crash are what are informing their sort of, uh, this sort of disciplinary um, uh, case. Uh, and, and that kind of evasiveness or um, forget the word that the justices were using, but said like how he interacted with law enforcement uh, following that crash. And, and the, the bar attorneys are worried that this, this case has, has eroded some public confidence in the legal profession. Um, the justices themselves asked Roundsburg and his lawyer um, why he didn't step aside in his role as the attorney general while this active homicide investigation was ongoing. And one of the things that Roundsburg uh, talked about in those comments later that, that we uh, just aired was um, part of the reason he didn't step aside was due to like the uncertainty about what would or could happen if he did step aside, including some of investigations that he was doing into the governor's office surrounding her use of the state plane or uh, um, her intervening in her daughter's appraisal license upgrade. Those investigations that he was doing, he was worried that some of those would get dropped uh, while he uh, stepped aside, and also whether or not the governor would appoint someone in his absence uh, during that specific time. So he said that's why he didn't step aside. Um, 
and that's why he felt like he should stay. Yeah, help us understand the, the 26 months, where that idea comes from. Is there a precedent for this punishment? Yeah, so um, the, they talked about that a little bit today, and, and the 26 months uh, suspension comes from uh, the case involving uh, former governor, former attorney general, former congressman Bill Janklow, who uh, struck and killed someone uh, in his uh, vehicle. Um, and a lot of parallels have been drawn between those two cases. Um, so the 26 months comes from after that happened, Janklow uh, sort of um, uh, like forfeited or, or handed over his law license uh, after that particular case. And then after 26 months, he handed it over voluntarily. And then after that 26 months, he went before the state Supreme Court and, and asked for it back. So that's where that kind of particular timestamp comes from. The differences here are that Jason Roundsburg has not voluntarily given up his law license. He hasn't practiced law since he was removed from office um, in June of 2022. Um, and so the bar's recommendation would be a 26 month uh, retroactive uh, punishment. So that would mean if that were to happen, Roundsburg could practice law theoretically in the state in August, if, if the Supreme Court goes with that particular recommendation. And tell us what Roundsburg attorney is arguing for. They're saying Roundsburg's defense is basically arguing um, that the bar is struggling to answer what rule that Roundsburg ultimately violated. Um, you know, some of the justices asked about Roundsburg's, again, uh, sort of interactions with law enforcement. Um, but Butler said that Roundsburg acted in a way that, you know, he would have advised his clients, which would be against self-incrimination, which is his legal right. Um, and then Butler also argues that by Roundsburg's staying in office during this investigation, it doesn't violate any of the, uh, the rules of professional conduct in the actual um, sort of uh, lawyer, uh, in, the, in the legal profession. So there, he's kind of wondering how that um, particularly plays with uh, this specific case. All right, so what happens next? Are we waiting for an opinion then? Yeah, so we'll, we'll wait on a, an a opinion or a recommendation from the state Supreme Court, uh, you know, similar to the uh, uh, advisory opinion that came out on Friday uh, last week. Time, I mean, the court operates on its own timeline, so it's hard to say when this uh, sort of judgment from them will, will ultimately come down, but, um, you know, in a few weeks or, or even a couple months, I would expect. So what is Jason Roundsburg doing now? Um, so following the uh, hearing, uh, several reporters and I uh, sort of lobbed some questions at him as he was uh, exiting the building. Um, he mostly said no comment. Uh, and, I, and I asked um, if he was still uh, living in the state, what he was doing now. Um, and he told me that uh, he still has a residence here, but that he is uh, doing some military duty at the moment out of state. Lee Strubinger, thank you so much for the update. We appreciate your time. You bet. Thanks for having me. We're going to check in with two young lawmakers today and talk about their bills and their priorities this legislative session. First up, we have Representative Caden Whitman. She's a Democrat from Sioux Falls, representing District 15, and she's seated now in SDPB's studios in the Capitol building in Pierre. Representative Whitman, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on today. All right, tell us a little bit. We're going to ask you about some of the things you feel are wins, whether that's an actual bill or whether that's a process uh, thing for you, and then some of your disappointments. But uh, tell us what's been going well for you 
individually as a lawmaker this session? Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a really exciting and fun development with one of my bills that took place just a few hours ago. Um, so this was a bill that originally I brought last year in 2023 and was actually the reason why I ran for office. What this bill does is waive the fee for a state ID for individuals who are experiencing homelessness in South Dakota. And that bill died a very painful death last year. And I took everything that I learned. I worked a lot with different stakeholders with the Department of Public Safety. I brought that bill back. It passed unanimously out of committee two weeks ago. And I'm really excited to say it passed unanimously out of appropriations this morning. So that is a huge win. Uh, now it will be heard in the full house, hopefully uh, early next week, and we can keep it moving forward. What did you learn from the early loss about what you needed to do differently to move the, the legislation forward? So for me specifically, I work really hard to make sure that my legislation uh, is directly informed by the individuals that would either have to enact that law or would be impacted by it. So I, I spent a lot of time meeting with different service providers that serve the unhoused population. I took the time to meet with the Department of Public Safety who were my main opponents to this bill last year. Um, and I asked how we could make this bill work for everybody to, to kind of mitigate that opposition and move it forward. And so taking all of that into account was what I think really helped to push this bill forward. All right, you also had some frustrations. What would you like to lift up today? Oh, golly, a few frustrations. <laughs> I think, um, you know, I think unfortunately one of my biggest frustrations was the fact that child marriage still remains legal in South Dakota. Um, I was shocked to discover last year during legislative session that our books state a 16-year-old can get married with parental consent. That I was, it, it was horrifying to me, frankly. And uh, I perhaps wrongly assumed that that bill would be a fairly easy bill. It ended up dying in its first committee hearing, I believe on an eight to five vote. Um, and that was, that was really disheartening for me me specifically. Did you learn something from the debate that would help you take another run at this in a future legislative session or, or not? Did you learn that it's a, it's a dead end for reasons that maybe you didn't anticipate? What do you think? Well, I don't like to think that anything is ever a dead end. Sure. I think with enough persistence and sheer force of will, I can eventually find some sort of forward movement. Um, I think what I learned from that specific hearing is just we need to maybe be a little bit more uh, clear when we're educating our legislators, specifically our legislators who are older. We had one legislator on that committee that mentioned that you know his wife was 17 when they got married and they've been married for 52 years. And I think that maybe 52 years ago that made sense, um, but the world has changed and our laws need to modernize and change to reflect that. And so I think perhaps a little bit more education for my legislators, and then maybe next year we start it in the Senate and see if it has an easier time over there. Let's talk to um, young people who might be thinking about running for office. Um, the next generation of lawmakers, if you were out recruiting or somebody came up to you and thought and said, you know, I've been thinking about maybe I can uh, be a public servant in this particular way, what would your advice be for them? I would say to just do it. Um, you're going to be scared and you're going to feel like you are not qualified and you might even think that you're not smart enough, um, but do it anyways. If you genuinely believe in your heart that you have the best interests of your community and your state in mind, if you have good ideas for how to make life better for people in your community and across South Dakota, 
just go for it. At the very least, you will learn something, you will meet a lot of people, and you will share your values with others. Um, and you know, losing an election is not the worst thing in the world, so don't let fear of that stop you. Representative Caden Whitman, representing District 15, joining us for an update. You're always welcome back, Caden. Thanks for joining us today. Great to see you. Thank you. This is In the Moment State House from SDPB. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. And before the break, we heard from Representative Caden Whitman for a look at the session from the perspective of a young and first-time lawmaker. Now we're going to head to the other side of the aisle to talk to another young legislator. Representative Tyler Tortson is a Republican representing District 14 of Sioux Falls, and he is with us from SDPB's Capitol Building Studios. Representative Tortson, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Hey, Lori, thanks for having me. We're going to start in the same place and sort of talk about some of the things that you consider wins, maybe some disappointments, and then some advice to other people who might be considering a, a future run for state legislature. So here we go. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you think have been particularly successful or eye-opening and, and in the win column for you this session. Yeah, well, I've been t people have been asking how it's going, and I tell them busy, but it's it's pretty <laughs> self-inflicted. I think I got seven or eight bills that I'm helping lead, on top of the other ones that I'm tracking with my committees on judiciary and education, and then the floor debates. Um, I would say in the win column for sure, I had one of the first bills um, kind of sail its way through and get to the governor. I planted the flag on that one early on. That was on tribal housing with the Housing Infrastructure Act last year. I will tell you just kind of a common theme that I've something that's important to me. I'm a lifelong South Dakotan, assistant often tribal member. I get to serve with my mother, a Representative St. John, who rep actually represents District 1 from up in Sisseton. And there's eight tribal member legislators, Republican and Democrat, House and Senate, and we are getting some wins. And we are having the conversation and moving the needles towards state tribal relations this session, which is I'm super excited about. Tell me a little bit more about that, because it is you don't want to paint too broad a brush about uh, tribal lawmakers. Certainly you're coming from different political parties, different mm -hmm. tribal affiliations, different family backgrounds, but yet there is room for consensus and moving things forward. How do you have some of those conversations to help people understand the importance of uh, you know bringing these kinds of things forward? Where's that common ground, I guess, is what I'm asking. Because it's not, you can't, yeah. you can't assume it's there. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I tell people, um, I interned in the state Senate 11 years ago. I interned with Governor Dugard that summer after that, and I've been keeping in touch with the process and watching as just an engaged citizen. And then now being here, I've told people I've always wanted to make change from the inside. And so um, just having the conversations, I knew from just getting to know my colleagues here in the legislature that a huge supermajority of them, Republican or Democrat, regardless of where they're from in the state, whether they represent tribal districts or not, care and they would love to move the needle towards reconciliation and better tri state tribal relations and so there's quite a few that we're finally doing it last year there was a couple attempts and good conversations and getting to know each other better this year we're putting putting words into action uh, i remind people that when i interned 11 years ago we didn't have a state of the tribes address um, and to be able to see tribal members and tribal leaders and tribal students coming and visiting the capital and taking part in the process and asking questions and advocating uh, just for a better state for all of us um, is a is a win in itself. So it doesn't feel like it at the time or all the time. It feels a little bit like a roller coaster, uh, but we we are heading in the right direction towards state tribal relations. So a couple examples I hit that tribal housing infrastructure uh, bill in House Bill 1041 earlier this year. I teamed up with Senator Bordeaux. Um, I, I give him I give him heck every now and then too. He's got a lot of different bills that he brings that die every year that I don't think he's actually trying to 
work or finesse to try to get them done, but we teamed up this year on Senate Bill 119, which is his bill, made it through the Senate, it's gonna be over on my side here uh, in the next week or so, which would allow tribal identification cards or tribal enrollment cards to be used to register to vote. And then you can already use them for business transactions, you can use them for uh, picking up your ballot. So that's another one. Uh, Representative St. John has a bill that passed out of House State Affairs today, I'm blanking on the number, 1234, 1243, something like that, on an Indian Child Welfare Advisory Council with the state, so formalizing a process. There's just quite a few. And then the flag stuff. We had a couple ceremonies earlier this year with the governor. Um, just, I really think that for the sake of all South Dakotans and the next generation, um, this is important stuff. All right, what are some of your disappointments or things that you would like another go at in the future? Well, a big one, I would say one of the biggest talkers that we've had this year that I got to help lead was um, my House Bill 1198, which is looking to change the way that we do, um, how we, we elect our Attorney General and our Secretary of State, your Chief Law Enforcement Officer, your Chief Election Officer in the state, the statewide position that right now, if you, uh, you know, have two or more people are running and it's on the primary ballot, um, these positions aren't. They're elected at a state party convention. And when you look at some of those numbers, um, we'll look at 2022 as an example. Um, in the Republican primary for governor, you had a, just shy of 120,000 people, registered Republicans turn out to vote. And you look at Attorney General, that was decided by, uh, I think there was a little more than 800 delegates that showed up at a convention. And most people I've talked to, this is a 90% issue. Everybody agrees that allowing more people to have a say in who we elect, especially in these statewide positions, is important. Um, so that one was one that we had robust debate uh, multiple committee discussions, two days of floor debate, and was really, really close, and didn't didn't get across the finish line. But I think that there's uh, that conversation isn't over. Yeah, I, there's it's hoghouse now, isn't it? There's some it's not dead completely. There's another conversation brewing. Do I understand that correctly? That's that's my understanding too. Okay. I heard that this morning on Senate Bill 13, and um, so it's now the conversation is going to be in the Senate. We'll get their take. You know, a lot of my colleagues on the House floor talked about let us let us fix some of this stuff internally and they punted. It's all, all talk, no action, but we're trying to deliver some action for the people. All right, well, we'll we will report on that as we get the, the facts come in to that conversation. Anything else you want to bring up that you think would be important to go forward with um, that you'd still like to see happen that you're, you're, you're working to push forward? You know, I, again, I got a whole variety of bills that I'm bringing this year, and most of them are still still in, in the process somewhere along the way. I have one that is a product of a fellowship last year that would waive the fee for birth certificates for homelessness, okay. uh, for anybody experiencing homelessness. That one I got through House Appropriations today, so it'll be before the full house here uh, in short order before crossover day. But that's a small, low-hanging fruit bill that we can do that can make an impact on, on these people that, that need that assistance, partner them up with government or nonprofit resources, and, and I'm, I'm trying to just uh, try to focus on issues and work with everybody I can just to, to try to make a difference in the 38 days that we're here, yeah. um, regardless of, of location or, or political, anything like that. And so that's one that I feel really good about that has a lot of consensus. There's been no opposition to that all the way through so far. I love that answer. It's like when people ask me, what's on the show this week? And I'm like, well... <laughs> Uh, there's a lot. Where do you want to begin? There's so yep. much. There's so much going on. Any advice for people who are thinking? You know, first-time lawmakers, young people, people who have just graduated mm -hmm. college, they like this pathway and they would like to consider a future um, in in running for office. What would you give them for advice? I would say definitely come up here and, and take part any chance you can get. 
if you're uh, in, in high school, I mean, even before high school, but in high school, we have the PAGE program where you come spend two weeks. Um, all of the schools are supportive of that. They come and assist the legislative process and get to see it firsthand. College internships is a phenomenal opportunity. We need more young people involved. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I decided to run is because we needed, we need diversity is a good thing in people, perspectives, ideas, you name it. Um, so having younger people serving provides that perspective that is needed in all debate regardless of the issue, regardless of the chamber. Um, so that's been a change that I think has, has happened uh, in the last couple of years that is, is welcome and was much needed. I hope that that continues in the future. We've had a lot of, Speaker Bartles has had a lot of assistance of grandkids and stuff visiting the Capitol, uh, sitting up there being able to bang the gavel. I got to do that 22 years ago in the state Senate. That was kind of the first catalyst for me that uh, got me interested in state politics. And yeah. so we need more young people to get involved. All right, Representative Tyler Tortson from District 14 in Sioux Falls. Tyler, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let us jump in for some political analysis with a member of our rotating panel of Dakota political junkies. Michael Card is a political scientist and professor emeritus at the University of South Dakota. He is seated across the table from me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Dr. Card, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. We just heard from two young lawmakers, and you spent years teaching the next generation of political scientists and, and lawyers and teachers and students that came through the University of South Dakota. So let's start with some basics. If you had somebody in your class who said, I, I think this you know, state legislature is fascinating, I might want to run for office someday. What are some of the things that you would want them to be studying and reading as a young college student? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question, and I guess the first thing I would uh, tell them to do is to think, what do you want to change in the world? When people say there ought to be a law, <laughs> what would that be for you? And then to begin work on that now and to get involved in talking as, as both uh, of these individuals said, both uh, Caitlin and Tyler, Talk to people, uh, find out what they're thinking, see who else is interested in this, and what are what are the challenges to there ought to be a law, and why why is this particular law a good idea, and can you eliminate the bad ideas or the bad consequences, because we never really know what the long run impact is going to be of a particular law, but we can identify some issues with it. So if we can eliminate the worst things, we can get good laws made. We had, we had a couple good examples, I think, already in this hour of, you know, somebody who was married 52 years ago might have a different idea about what marriage is than somebody who is thinking about marriage today for a whole variety of reasons. They might not. They might be perfectly aligned. But the world does, in fact, change in some way. So that diversity of, of age matters in peer. If, if the student was talking to you and said, well, okay, how much am I going to get to be idealistic about change and how much should I really be part of a party? You know, like where is that party line negotiation? The politics versus the, I want to, you know, be there for my constituents. What kind of advice or, or critical well, thinking skills would you want them to employ? Well, I, I think we have to remember that politics is about who gets to decide. And in that sense, it's really about power and authority. And so you really do have to draw a line between what are the issues that are core to who I am as a human being and what are the, the, the things I have to do to be a good member of the political party, which we hope matches what the individual's ideology is. And I, I think uh, that that set of values and beliefs is more important to a young person 
right now than they probably have been. But right now we see they're really bifurcated and they're bifurcated across a number of issues, but you have to, you have to do what you believe is right for you. You know, I have to mm -hmm. sleep at night. And right. so sometimes you, you decide I'm not going to win on this issue, but it's still worth pursuing. And I, I'm hoping that the caucus process allows individuals to still pursue their ideas, even though they may lose in the caucus and the caucus may decide to go another direction. Mm -hmm. And we see that in Congress too. Sure. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about some of the things in the state house crossover day next week. Let's do some procedural talk for the newcomers around the table. Okay. What exactly is Crossover Day, and why is everybody just a little bit frenetic right now? Well, uh, <laughs> it, there's a good reason to be frenetic. Uh, we, you know, a legislature is a body of 105 people, and in the House of Representatives, there's 70 people. So you have to have a set of procedures by which you're going to pursue the action of making laws and, and resolutions and the like. So a crossover day, given that we have a limit of 40 days and our legislature has scheduled 38 days this year that they're going to run, there has to be a day when a bill passed in one chamber has to be out of that chamber so that the other chamber has time to look at it. And so that's what crossover day is. It's the day where bills have to cross over from one chamber to the other chamber. And that'll happen uh, for out of the committee of origin on Tuesday and on Wednesday is crossover day of next week. And so if it doesn't cross over to the other house, it's dead. It's dead. All right. So a few things that have come up. Budget projections are in. Yes. It looks like uh, $41 million in one-time money for this fiscal year, um, more than expected. Do I understand that correctly? Don't I think that was more than expected. Okay. Yeah. Um, the revenue projections matter to lawmakers a lot. Um, how come? Well, because we have to know how much money we can spend. Uh, <laughs> because if, if you're budgeting for the, you know, the general fund is for the operations of state government and its existing institutions. So we would need a special appropriation or special consideration if we're going to add a new program or something. But that's the general appropriations bill only requires a 50% majority out of the appropriations committees and in each chamber of the legislature to go to the governor for signature. Special appropriations require a two-thirds vote. But the general appropriations bill is for the existing state government and its institutions. So we're looking at differences of opinion a little mm -hmm. slightly between the legislature's budget office and the governor's budget office. But governor's budget office is often called the Bureau of Finance and Management. That's its official title. But the legislature had lower projections, it appears, than what the governor's office had for the sales tax which is six and use tax which is 62 percent of the state's general fund budget okay. so but they compromised <laughs> they basically took the average of that uh, but but that would be a decrease for next year again if something's 62 percent of your budget and it decreases a little bit that that may need, mean some belt tightening here and there. Okay. So we're going to cover that a lot more in the future. A little procedural thing that um, happened, and you're seeing a lot of activity on Twitter about a debate that was on the floor, and then all of a sudden they were just done talking about it. They voted, uh, called to question to help us understand maybe how some of these procedural things happen and, and people leverage the rules 
to be on the winning side of what they want? Well, it, it's uh, in studying the U.S. Congress, the person who knows the rules is really the master of the game. And in some senses, that applies to the state legislature as well. Those rules are what I spoke of as legislative procedures that are necessary to provide an order and a flow of activity so that they can get their work done. In this case, uh, Representative Widman gave her pitch for why this particular bill should be passed and then the next person to be registered, r recognized by the Speaker of the House asked for the question. It's a non-debatable question to say, let's stop debate and let's just vote on the bill. And that passed by a voice vote. And then the, the vote for the final uh, disposition of the bill came up and it failed 7 to 63, I believe yeah. is the number. It might be a little done. off. It's done. And, and the reason people are upset by that is because the idea that we have that we should be able to have an open debate about this was a sensitive topic. There was sexual content to the topic. It was a, a bill to, you know, to codify stealthing right. as, as being uh, against state law. But that debate didn't get aired. And that, that offends the sensibilities of people who say there should be an open debate. But it's also a rule that was effectively leveraged at that time. At that time. All right. Uh, something else we're still seeing, and it's like a ping pong match sometimes as you try to figure out how these lawmakers are dealing with obscenity on campus. Um, you, you, University of South Dakota, you're not speaking for them, um, but that's a Board of Regents organization. The Board of Regents passed some rules to sort of deal with what lawmakers were asking in the past as far as what kind of performances they can stage. You're getting into freedom of expression and what kind of theatrical performance can be staged. And now we see this, you know, anti-obscenity um, bill that is sort of unspecified, but everybody thinks it's about drag performances. But the people who are bringing it forth saying, well, we didn't say it's about drag. Yep, there's no language that says it's a drag bill. What's going on? Well, uh, I think we have to remember that, that most of the... Um, original 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution limit what government does. The 14th Amendment passed during Reconstruction applied those laws not just to the federal government to which they originally applied, they now apply to the states. So the state can't pass a law that abridges someone's freedom of speech. And freedom of speech has been broadly interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court to also include expression. So uh, <laughs> it's that that level of uh, I mean that brings up a level of conflict is this going to pass constitutional muster and certainly if it involved the drag bills those that's someone's expression and whether we like it or not if if that's a student at a state university the state university can't really prohibit that they can consider time manner and place as to where that expression can take place but it can't be out and out prohibited. And that's that's the freedom of speech issue. Mm -hmm. So I believe what Representative Carr's bill did was simply say, we can't do this sort of activity in state-owned buildings, which would be, I think, is, is an attempt to make it be consistent with time, manner, and place. So uh, can, can it be done out in the open? Hmm. <laughs> I think that would be worse than if it were. But I, I think the other side is, is this is a bill that is prohibiting activity that right now isn't taking place. 
Mm. And I, I asked, I, I was interviewed by the student newspaper on this topic, and I said, well, are you guys aware of anything like this happening on our campus? No, and it's not happening up at state either with their, co with their colleagues up at the collegiate. So it's a bill, and it's a number of social issues that are making their way into, into mm. our laws where we are trying to prohibit behaviors that we find objectionable. Does that mean it's having a chilling effect? Or does that mean it's a problem, a solution looking for a problem? Well, I, I think if we're looking at lewd and lascivious activity, which is what some of the obscenity bills would be, uh, that might challenge an individual's right to freedom of expression. But again, time, manner, and place where that can be exhibited is under the control of the institution of state government, which would be, but right. I, I, it could be. And we're not saying that drag is inherent, and that's one of the other questions that seems to come up in the debates, and we have to wrap up for now, but that whether or not this thing that some people look at and say, that's lewd, that's obscene, that's, that should not exist. Other people are looking at that and saying, this is an art form, this right. is expression, this is not sexual at all. This is a costume. And here is the debate that we're having here. Right. And that they're having there, not you and yeah, I. I mean, yeah. But yeah. And it, it is a matter of, of opinion and what the standard that on one bill that didn't make it through or that, that isn't alive anymore dealt with community standards. and. Right. And who's, who, which is the community here? Is it of the student's community? And I would suspect that the student community would be more accepting than the larger community, even of Vermilion. Right. A whole lot of uh, basics laid out. If you're following the session for the first time, ask a college professor how it works. <laughs> we thank you for that, Dr. Michael Card. Thank you for having me. This is In the Moment State House on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, South Dakota has the oldest system for direct democracy in the state. Each election year, voters might be asked to weigh in on constitutional amendments, initiated measures, and referendums. Lawmakers and peer are well acquainted with the process, and today we're talking about how the debate during a legislative session impacts the ongoing gathering of signatures for ballot question petitions. And who better to talk about that this year than Rick Weiland? He is head of Dakotans for Health. That's a group currently circulating petitions to put abortion rights back on the ballot after Roe v. Wade was overturned. We're living in a Dobbs world now. And Rick Weiland is here with us um, in the studio. Thanks for stopping by. It's great to be here. It's not, you're not collecting petitions in isolation. Um, but lawmakers are also not making laws in isolation because after Dobbs, they knew that voters might want to have a say based on what we're seeing happening across the country, and you thought the same thing. So help us understand where we're at with petition gathering, and then give me your thoughts on how the debate in peer is really impacting that process outside of the Capitol building. Well, um, as I like to remind the legislature, uh, under God the people rule, which is our state motto, uh, but we've had this ability in South Dakota since 1898 to, as you pointed out, to refer bills we don't like, uh, pass bills that you know we want to pass that the legislature won't, and amend the Constitution. So when Dobbs was uh, uh, decided, um, you know they threw the whole idea of reproductive rights back to the states, and um, 
we uh, have an opportunity and have been working hard to collect enough signatures to put uh, a Roe v. Wade uh, language uh, on uh, on the ballot this November. And uh, yeah, it is the talk of the town in Pierre. I understand there's actually a bill right now that if passed under the emergency clause would allow people to go door to door and uh, ask people who signed our petition to withdraw their name. And uh, this is just an, another, uh, I would call it a desperate act uh, by a legislature that is completely dominated explain, by one party. Yeah, explain that right now. Because if you sign a petition, you put your address down, and then that address goes to the Secretary right. of State, and then they're saying... Well, what they'll do if this bill you passes... It, you changed your mind. They'll right. come back and they'll say to you, right. hey, I don't know that what you signed was what you wanted to sign. Right. But now, if this bill passes, you can remove yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they can. I mean, okay. that would uh, be the effect of the bill. That's the intention of the bill. As I said, they are they they are trying very hard to stop us from getting this on the ballot. Um, you know, there have been efforts. They got this. Uh, what is it? Declined to sign, which you probably heard about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, an angry mob of protesters out there going after our petitioners and going after people that want to sign the sign the initiative. And, uh, you know, it... it well, uh, I want you to clarify angry mob of protesters. Well, they're yelling and screaming and getting, you know, and, and harassing um, these individuals that are part of this decline to sign movement. Okay, I see. So they're, they're going after our, our petitioners and have been for months. They're going after people that want to sign, trying to intimidate them from signing. And, uh, and it is an attempt, again, to block democracy, to, 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 to block something that this legislature just simply doesn't control. And uh, they, you know, they can stop a lot of things from happening in peer that the people want, but we have recourse, and that's called the citizen initiative process. There have been challenges. There was a, a public letter from the attorney general saying the way this, this, the signatures were being gathered, they had some video evidence of unattended petitions. So help... Um, remind us how you have to gather your petitions and speak directly to the voters who maybe want to find a petition or, and, and want to make sure that their signature counts if they do sign it. Yeah, we, all of our people that are circulating go through a pretty rigorous process. We've had over 400 people collect signatures in South Dakota since we started the Roe campaign. By the way, you didn't mention the grocery taxes, which is something else we're working on. But uh, so they go through this process. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was unfortunate that um, they were able to file a complaint. When I say they, I mean the anti-reproductive uh, uh, care groups that have formed in opposition to us to be able to make these allegations to the attorney general. And the attorney general wrote a letter to us. Our lawyer looked at whatever evidence they had and, uh, you know, uh, it was just a little bit over the line on their part to do that. Um, we train our people well. Um, you know, there are rigorous rules in place, the things you can and can't do. And, um, you know, we have successfully to this date uh, collected over 50,000 people who want the decision to decide this, not the legislature. And 65%, if you'll recall, shortly after Dobbs was decided, uh, want the right to make this decision at the ballot box and not by the legislature and peer. So there's a pr- pr- really quite a bit of staggering 
uh, evidence that people want this decision to be made by themselves and not a bunch of politicians sitting in the, peer, uh, in the state capitol. Politics in America is rough and tumble. You know that. <laughs> politics. I saw a little bit of that when I was seen, in Pierre last you've week. You've seen a little bit of rough and tumble <laughs> in South Dakota politics, but you mentioned going over the line. Where is the line from? I mean, I, that's a vague question, but like when we talk about um, you know being passionate, uh, knowing the rules, leveraging the things, you know, playing a little bit rough. But there's also a line where you're getting to ethical decisions and like well, you got you got to be able let's to sleep talk at night. So yeah, talk about exactly. That a well, bit you here. know, I think one of the huge sort of over the line moments since we started this campaign was uh, the Minnehaha County Auditor trying to restrict fee- free speech on the admin campus, the Blue Building in Sioux Falls here, to 0.7 percent when it had been 100 percent. We had to take that to court. And we won. We, we, we restored the right to collect signatures. Her proposal, which the commission approved, put us in a box out in the middle of the, of the uh, a parking lot, away from the door, away from the traffic. And uh, I, I think that's over the line. I think letting the people decide and trying uh, to use, uh, you know, uh, it, it, and it has been an angry mob of people to intimidate, I think that I'm that's not loving the word mob, it, but it is a mob. Can you be really specific? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, fifty people yelling at uh, you? Do you mean twenty three? sometimes? Okay. Uh, you know, but they're 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 protesting our right to petition, okay. and they're protesting the right of voters to sign our petition. I think that's over the line. Now we can have a debate about our uh, our, our amendment, which we did in Pierre, and I told them point blank that the resolution that they were passing uh, was a pack of lies. There's nothing in our amendment that um, would allow for an unnecessary abortion in the third trimester. It doesn't exist. And yet that's what they say. We're going to have all kinds of conversations about the abortion question itself going forward as we wrap up this conversation about the procedures and the impact that uh, Peer has in our remaining 30 seconds for real. Um, There's political consequences to all of this that maybe go beyond the issue. What are your what are your final thoughts on like this is politics, but there's consequences to politics. You know, and one of the things I thought was so amusing in the last political cycle was the legislature tipping the scales and passing an amendment and putting it on uh, what they call legislative amendment and putting it on the June primary, which w- would have required Medicaid expansion, which you know we worked on aggressively, I was in here multiple times, to pass by 60% on a primary ballot. Democrats didn't have any primaries in uh, June of uh, 2022. The Republicans did, and I was told, I had someone do the analysis, if not a single Democrat had voted in that primary, the Republicans themselves would have defeated Amendment C, which was the supermajority requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you want to get into process and, and sort of these, these kinds of activities have, have consequences. Sure they do. Requiring a 60% supermajority or being able to go out and knock on a door of someone who signed a petition and intimidate them uh, from, uh, you know, to withdraw their signature, that has consequences. I'm going to jump in there. We're going to continue to report on those uh, pieces of legislation at sdpb.org slash news so you can find out more about them. But that is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Our last guest of the hour here, Rick Wyland. He is the head of Dakotans for Health. And I thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Lori. From all of us at SDPB, we thank you for listening. <laughs>